So we're in the second week of this Lenten series that is going to take us all the way through Easter. And uh, we're looking at Jesus' life through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember, we talked about last week that Luke is actually part one of a two-part book that includes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And both were written by Luke, who was the uh, traveling partner and kind of co-worker with Paul the Apostle. And in the early chapters of Luke, we started last week in chapter four, and in the early chapters of Luke, chapter one, two, three, leading up even to chapter four, uh, we see that the people in Jesus' day were definitely living with a sense of expectation in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of a Savior. But the Savior they were expecting was a Savior who was going to restore Israel's national sovereignty and return Israel to a position of power and a position of prosperity. They were looking for a savior who was gonna kick out the oppressive Roman government and their oppressive colonial rule. And then when you get to Luke chapter four, which we looked at the first part of Luke four last week, when you get to the second part of Luke four, Jesus has concluded his 40 days uh, of fasting and prayer. He's preparing for his ministry. He's tempted while he's in the desert. He's tempted by the devil. We talked about that and the resistance to the temptations of Satan. And then he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, to launch his ministry. And he goes into the synagogue. Jesus was a rabbi. And he goes into the synagogue. And as a rabbi would do in the synagogue, he stands to read a passage of scripture. And this is the passage on this day that he reads is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that was it. Like that was the sermon. Uh, and some of you are going, Rod, I wish you were more like Jesus in your preaching. Uh, because that was it. Like he read it. And mic drop, he's done, he walks away, and people are waiting, like they're waiting, they're waiting, their eyes, everyone's eyes in the synagogue is focused on him, and he begins by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, end of sermon. Now, everyone is like super amazed by his sermon and they believe, at least in that moment, that indeed he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the one they've been waiting for. That is, until Jesus makes it clear that his ministry has nothing to do with kicking out the oppressive Roman government and restoring their national sovereignty. It's actually something way, way more significant, way, way more magnificent than that. And when they realize that the oppressor that Jesus is talking about in his sermon is not the Roman government, which they thought, oh, that's the oppressor, the Roman government. And when they realize that Jesus is not talking about the Roman government as the oppressor, they try to kill him. Now we get to chapter five. And we see Jesus doing all the things in chapter five that he preached about in chapter four, in this first sermon that he preached. We see Jesus healing people. He's setting people free. He's transforming people's lives. We see the year of the Lord's favor. We see the kingdom of God at work. And there are three stories in chapter five that reflect that and manifest that. 
Each one of them is unique. The circumstances are unique. The needs are unique. The setting of each one of them is unique. But there are three threads that run through these three stories uh, that tie them all together. And that's why I want to deal with these three stories as a whole. And the first thread is that everyone in these three stories, everyone who encounters Jesus is experiencing some kind of hopelessness in their lives. There's something that each of them have given up on. There's something they wanted to have happen and have become convinced isn't going to happen. The second thread is that each of these individuals choose to trust God even in the midst of the sense of hopelessness that they are going through. And the third thread is that Jesus responds to their hopelessness, but he does it in a way that they don't expect. <laughs> in each case, he surprises them. Uh, the miraculous manifestations of his grace don't look exactly like they thought that they were going to look or not what they were looking for, or what they anticipate or whatever it is, like he surprises them. Now, with that in mind, just that as a context, I just want to unpack the three stories for you today. The first one involves Peter, Simon Peter, he's called here. Uh, Jesus is at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching. Huge crowd has gathered around. Simon is there with James and John and some others. They've just got done fishing and they are cleaning their nets. And as Jesus began to preach, more and more people come. Crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus gets in Peter's boat and tells Peter to push out a little bit so that there's a little bit more distance so that he, the people can hear Jesus, the people can see Jesus preaching. And so, so Peter does that, and then this happens. Verse four, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we, we've, you don't understand, <laughs> we've worked hard all night, we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat, which would have been James and John, uh, and they signal them and, and to come and help. And they come and they filled both their boats so full that both of the boats began to say, that, that's a catch. Like that is a catch. I'm, the, I'm, I'm known in many circles as the worst fisherman in the world. Like I just cannot catch fish. And I've had folks who have said, you just don't have the right bait. You don't know where to go, all of that. And then they take me out and then they go, you're right. You are terrible. Like, you are terrible. I don't know what it is, but you cannot get. Well, they're, like, this is something they never imagined. Now, Peter had given up in that moment. Peter had given up on catching any fish in that specific place on that specific day. They had fished, they had fished, they had fished. They hadn't caught anything. In fact, when Jesus starts teaching, they're off to the side. They're cleaning their nets. They're done, at least for the day. They have given up hope. And then Jesus tells Peter, Okay, go out a little deeper, put down your nets. And it's interesting what Peter's first response is to Jesus. His first response to Jesus is basically to tell Jesus, Jesus, stay in your lane. 
Like, stay in your lane. You're a carpenter. I'm sure you're good at that. I'm sure you can build stuff. That's fine. I'm a professional fisherman. I know what it takes to catch fish. And we have been here all night. Trust me, there are no fish out there at this time. Now, this isn't the main point of the message, but I just want to say, we do the same thing sometimes. We often tell Jesus, we would never say it this way, but in essence, it's what we're saying. We tell Jesus, Jesus, stay in your lane. Like, stay in your lane. Jesus, I, I know best how to deal with this relationship. So Jesus, just stay in your lane. Lane. Jesus, I know best how to steward my sexuality. So Jesus, just stay, just stay in your lane. Jesus, I know best how to steward my money, how to steward my vocation, how to steward this situation. So Jesus, Jesus, I got this. So just stay, just stay in your lane. But to Peter's credit, Peter does trust Jesus and he goes ahead and he's obedient and he lets his nets down. And what happens? Peter takes in the biggest catch that he has ever seen in his life. It's miraculously big. So many fish that the boats begin to sink. And when another boat comes, it begins to sink as well. But the manifestation, this miraculous manifestation of God's grace isn't ultimately isn't about fish. It's about something bigger than that. And you see that when you see how Peter responds to this miraculously big catch of fish. Does he run over and hug Jesus? No. Does he get all excited and go, I'm rich because this is the biggest catch I've ever had and now I'm successful. This is gonna be the best fishing business in the history of Galilee. Does he get excited? Does he embrace Jesus? No, none of that. This is how he responds. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter comes face to face with the miraculous presence of God. And what happens? He sees himself for who he really is. He becomes acutely aware of his flaws. He becomes acutely aware of his sin. He becomes acutely aware of his brokenness. And everywhere in the Bible, it's not unique to Peter. You just see this over and over again in Scripture. Everywhere in the Bible where people get like intimately close to God, we see them becoming acutely aware of their own sins. Um, here's the deal. If someone says, or maybe you've thought this at times, or maybe you know someone who's thought this at times. If someone says, you know, I really don't get the grace thing. Like, I really don't. I really don't get like this preoccupation with forgiveness and all of that. And I know I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but I don't really feel like I have any significant thing to be forgiven for. I'm not sure I need a ton of grace like in my life. It doesn't seem like that's a big need in my life. I'm doing pretty well. I'm living a pretty good life. All of that. You know that's someone who hasn't really been in the holy presence of God. Because the moment we see God's holiness, we become aware of our unholiness. It's like when you think you're the smartest person in the world until you encounter someone like super smart 
and way smarter than you, and then all of a sudden you become profoundly aware of all the things that you don't know? Or it's like when you're a really good athlete and then you hang out with athletes who are way more talented, way better than you, and that's when you start to see all the areas that need to improve all of that. You can live, you can live with the illusion that you're pretty holy until you get close to the perfectly holy God. And then you begin to understand, I begin to understand the depth of my brokenness. Now here's what I really love about this encounter that Peter has with Jesus. At the very moment that Peter becomes profoundly aware of his brokenness, Jesus says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore and they left everything. The boats, the, the nets, the fish, <laughs> the catch that would have made him rich, they left everything and followed him. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I don't, I don't want the awareness of your brokenness to drive you away from me. I, I want it to do just the opposite. I want it to drive you towards me. I want it to cause you to follow me because I want to change the world, Peter. Believe it or not, I want to change the world through you. It's, it's your humble spirit that is exactly what I'm looking for. It's your ability to recognize your own brokenness that is exactly what I'm looking for. It's people who understand their brokenness, Jesus says, that I'm going to use to change the world. That's the first story. Second story is this. It's the healing that takes place in the life of a man who has leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is like an overarching term in some respects, like we talk about cancer, but then there's all different kinds of cancer. And so you have to kind of know well, what kind and what's specifically going on. That's kind of the way leprosy is used in scripture. Like leprosy is used to describe this very large range of disfiguring and disabil disabilitating skin diseases. Most of them were contagious, not all of them, but most of them were contagious. And even as awful as the physical dimension of leprosy was, what was even worse, what was even more devastating was the impact it had emotionally and socially and spiritually on people. Lepers became social outcasts. They, just think about this. This is hard to imagine. They weren't allowed to visit towns, to even go into a town, to go into a city. They were completely cut off from society. No one could touch them. And in Israel, they were considered ceremonially unclean. So they weren't allowed in the temple to worship, to offer sacrifices, to experience community with the people of God, like none of that. And Luke tells us about an encounter that Jesus has with someone who has leprosy. And this is what he says. While Jesus was in one of the towns... A man came along, he wasn't supposed to be in the town, but he saw Jesus. A man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and he said, I am willing. 
I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves the man. And Jesus then ordered him to do something interesting. He says, don't tell anyone, partly because people don't fully understand the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And he doesn't just want kind of this premature sharing of it. But he says, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them, as a testimony to the fact that you are now clean. Now, again, here is someone who's experiencing this profound sense of hopelessness. That's what all three of these stories have in common, a profound sense of hopelessness. But unlike Peter, where it was just like, oh, it's hopeless that I'm gonna ever catch any fish. Like he, his leprosy is in the advanced stages. It's covered his whole body. He's probably been dealing with it for many, many years, and it just, just keeps getting worse, and he's given up all hope that this is ever going to change. But in the midst of his hopelessness, he puts his trust in Jesus. And when he finds out that Jesus is in the town close by, even though he's not allowed in the town, he makes a mad dash to Jesus in the midst of the town, hoping that no one catches him before he gets to Jesus because he knows he's not allowed to be there. And he falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, we're told, makes him whole. He heals the man physically. But here's the thing. Like the man came to Jesus to get healed physically. Like that's what he was expecting. That's what he was wanting. That's what he was asking for. But again, what's common in all of these stories is that Jesus surprises people. Like Jesus does more than they expect. More than they could imagine. Like Paul says. That God is able to do more than we could immeasurably more than we, we could ever ask, immeasurably more than we could ever even imagine. And that's what Jesus does in all three of these stories. He does immeasurably more than even the individuals who are going through whatever it is that they're going through in the midst of their hopelessness could even ask for in the midst of that hopelessness. And what Jesus does is, he, yes, he heals the man physically, but he does more than that. We're told that Jesus reached out and he, and he touched the man. Now you say, well, Jesus reached out and touched the man because that was the way that he healed the man. No, Jesus didn't have to touch the man to heal the man. Jesus healed people in all different kinds of ways. In fact, we're told in one story that Jesus isn't even in the same town of the person that he heals. So there's like no formula. Jesus is not on this healing Messiah formula. Okay, touch the person and then God heals them. No, it's not about the healing. This is about something else. This isn't about physical healing. This is about emotional and social and spiritual healing. Because when Jesus touches the man and says, be clean, this shatters all of the categories that the Jews had, especially for like what was clean and what was unclean. It just shattered the categories. In the Old Testament, when that which was clean, that which was ceremonially clean, comes into contact with the unclean, the clean becomes unclean. The unclean 
taints the clean. That's why after someone who is ceremonially clean touches someone who is not, they have to go to the temple to go through that, that right again, that, that cleansing right again, so that they can be ceremonially clean. But with Jesus, <laughs> it's just the opposite. When Jesus touches that which is unclean, it becomes clean. The clean doesn't become unclean, the unclean becomes clean. And that's why Jesus told the man to go to the temple. He wanted him to go and to show the priest that he was clean, that his uncleanliness had not rubbed off on Jesus, that Jesus' cleanliness had rubbed off on him, that his purity had rubbed off on him that his righteousness had rubbed off on him. That's why, see, this is, this is why Jesus hung out with sinners. This is why the biggest accusation of Jesus' ministry was that he was always being accused of being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people because the idea was that uncleanness defiles cleanness. But not with Jesus. When Jesus touches our lives, the unclean becomes clean. The unholy becomes holy. The unrighteous becomes righteous. The unpure becomes pure. That's what happens. Jesus is saying, when I touch you, my cleanness becomes your cleanness. Third story is about a group of friends who take their friend who is paralyzed to Jesus. Context is that Jesus is preaching in the region of Galilee where he spent most of his ministry. And we're told that as he's preaching, people are coming from every village, every town in Galilee to hear him preach. And uh, from Judea, from the whole region of Judea, and even some, some Pharisees, some teachers of the law who have traveled all the way from Jerusalem, which was a long trip, to hear Jesus teach. For the Pharisees, they were trying to kind of catch him in something, but these people have come from all over to hear Jesus preach. And he's in this house preaching, and, and we're told that the Spirit of the Lord falls on Jesus. It's not like he was there to have a healing service is that he's just teaching and the spirit of the Lord falls and people begin to get healed and the word starts to spread and more people start to come and more people start to come and more people start to come and the house gets filled and people are outside the house trying to get in and there's this line that's formed. We see this over and over again. We've seen it recently that anytime God shows up, and there is an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, people want to be there. Like people want to see what's going on. People are interested in what God is doing. Even people that haven't connected the dots, even people that are not sure what they believe about God, like when God's Spirit pours out on us, like people want to see, and that's what's happening. All of these people are coming. But here's this man who is immobile, who is paralyzed, who even though he wants to get to Jesus, he can't get to Jesus. 
And so his friends say, don't worry. (laughs) We got your back. We got you. You're good. We'll take you. We'll take you to Jesus. And that's the way that's the way it is sometimes. Like sometimes we find ourselves in a situation. Sometimes I have found myself in a situation that seems so hopeless that we don't even have the energy, we don't have the faith to, to get ourselves to Jesus. Like we, we are immobilized, we are We are so paralyzed and immobilized by the hopelessness of the situation. It's just like, I don't even know if I have the energy to get to Jesus. I don't know that I have the faith to get to Jesus. And when we get in those times, like we need friends who have faith for us. (laughs) We need friends who can trust God for us. We don't need friends who judge us who question us because we don't seem to be acting in faith right now or praying the right kind. We need folks who can stand in the gap and have faith on our behalf, can intercede for us and come before the Father on our behalf. Like that's what we need and that's what this guy has. And that's what they do. They literally take their friend to Jesus. They They trust Jesus on his behalf and they put their friend on a mat and they take him on the stairway that leads up to the roof of the house uh, because every home, the top level of the house outside the roof of the house was part of the home and it was used to to have events and to do things. It was just part of the, the, the house and so there was always an outside staircase and so they take him up that outside staircase, but still they can't get into the house. And so they do what any good followers of Jesus would do. They destroy stuff and and they destroy the the roof on this house and they just tear it. I don't know when was the last time they had the roof repaired, but they were going to have to get it repaired again because it just gets destroyed. And they lower their friend, they had ropes something, they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus, like really creative stuff, like super creative stuff. And then this is what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, take up your mat and walk. No, he did not say that. He said it later. But first, when he sees their faith, we're told in verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, at this point, there are two groups that are totally confused. The friends are totally confused because they didn't bring their friend to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. They brought their friend to Jesus to have his paralysis dealt with to be healed physically that's why they brought him so that he could hear the words take up your mat and walk not your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are confused and they're angry for a different reason and Luke tells us why 
So the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking, began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking. Can I just pause there for a second and just say that's just true all the time? So like if you're measuring your prayers, if you're not sure that you want to say what you need to say, to G- Jesus knows what you are thinking. He knows what you are thinking. So go ahead and be honest with God. There is no reason not to be honest with God. He knows what they are thinking. And he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable, remarkable things today. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the reason this guy is paralyzed is because of his sin. Jesus is saying that his deepest need in this moment is not his physical healing. His deepest need is the healing of his relationship with God. And he loves this guy so much that he wants to deal with his deepest need, his alienation from God, his need for forgiveness. Sometimes we ask God for things that do not represent our deepest needs. And that's okay. Like we, we ask God for lots of things. And sometimes, and they're not unimportant, like they're important things, but sometimes we ask for God for things that really don't represent our deepest needs. And God loves us so much that his focus is always on meeting our deepest need. Like that is his primary mission in our life, to meet our deepest need. That doesn't mean that God is not concerned about our secondary needs. He is. It just means that he's not going to meet our secondary needs and ignore our deepest needs. He loves us way too much to do that. God is always going to to get at our deepest needs. That's why so often we get surprised by God. Because we're asking him for this, we're focused on this, we're obsessed with this, and God surprises us. He does something different than what we thought in this moment. And even though you cannot always know like what everything is that God is doing, what you can be confident is, is that God is always focused on your deepest needs. Like whatever your deepest needs are, God is always focused on that. When Jesus asked the rhetorical question, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? They, the friends and the Pharisees would probably say, well, it's harder to say take up your mat and walk. That kind of proves everything. But Jesus knows that the answer is actually get up and walk. That's the easiest thing. 
saying your sins are forgiven is way harder. Because in order to remove this man's sin, he has to bear this man's sin on the cross. He had to die for this man's sin. He had to die for our sin in order to say your sins are forgiven. It cost Jesus his life to be able to speak the words, your sins are forgiven. But to demonstrate to them that he has the authority to forgive sin, Jesus tells the man to take up your mat and to walk. I just want to say a word about healing. A lot of you have experienced God's healing presence in your life. I've experienced God's healing presence in my life. God has done some miraculous, miraculous, miraculous things in my life. I am so thankful, so thankful for the prayers of the people of God. It's so amazing when that happens. But I want to say Jesus doesn't heal us ever just to make us feel better, just so we can feel better. Jesus heals us for a purpose. He heals us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus heals us to give us a glimpse of the kingdom in all of its fullness. Jesus heals our bodies to remind us that he has the power to perform an even greater healing, the healing of our relationship with God. This side of heaven, you know, sometimes people talk when they talk about God's healing presence and what God has done, the miraculous things that God has done, it's just like, well, is it, is it permanent? Is the healing permanent or is it temporary? Like, is this a permanent healing or is this a temporary healing? And I just wanna put that in context for you because this side of heaven, the healing of our bodies is always a temporary thing. Like this side of heaven, the healing of our bodies is always a temporary thing. It may change the trajectory of our life for a while, but eventually, scripture says, and we're reminded of by the history of humanity, eventually we will still die. It's like we say on Ash Wednesday, Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But the healing of our relationship with God is permanent. Can I get it, amen? The healing of our relationship with God is permanent. It lasts for eternity. Everyone who is in Christ will one day experience a complete and a total and a permanent restoration of their bodies. Everything will be made whole forever. Everything will be made right forever. And that's what gives us hope. Even when things look hopeless now, even when we aren't getting the answers that we hoped we would get, even when things aren't playing out the way we hoped they would play out, that the promise, the promise the promise is that there is this final, ultimate healing that will take place when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. We're going to close today by doing something that reminds us of the miracle of God's healing transformation in our lives. And that's the Lord's Supper. Communion represents the 
miraculous healing of our relationship with God. Every time we take it, reminds us of the miraculous healing of our relationship with God. A healing that was made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. And I just want to say a word um, in a moment. In a moment, our ushers are going to come forward. I want to pray. Our band's going to come out. Worship team going to lead us in worship. Communion is going to be passed out. Uh, I'll come back up. We'll take communion together. An act of our common life. We'll worship some more. And I just want to say uh, a word to three groups of people. The first are those of you that have experienced the miraculous healing of your relationship with God. That God has made you whole. That Jesus' holiness is your holiness. That Jesus' righteousness is your righteousness. That Jesus' purity is your purity. That you've experienced his forgiveness. You've experienced his grace. You've said yes to all of that. And as you partake of communion, it's a chance to celebrate what God has done. Continue to say thanks for his miraculous activity in your life. And then I want to say a word to those that maybe have never made that decision. But uh, maybe today is the day to make that decision. God's working in your heart. The Spirit has come. Um, you sense that God is at work. And uh, as the communion elements come by the cup and the bread, that you will take them, maybe for the first time, you will take them, and it actually represents a decision that you're making in this moment. A decision to follow Jesus. A decision to have Jesus restore your relationship with the God who created you and loved you so much that he died for you on a cross. Then I want to say a word to another group. It's those of you that maybe are on the journey and haven't yet crossed over that line and, and maybe just are not ready to cross over that line today. And I want you to know, I want more than anything for every single one of you to make the decision to follow Jesus. But my desire for you to do that pales in comparison to God's desire. Like your father wants more than anything else for you to come to know him in a personal way, to have your relationship restored with But if you're on this journey and today is not the day, I just want you to know it's okay. Like, it's okay. God wants you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. But I just want you to know it's okay. And as the communion elements are passed, um, you don't have to pretend 
There's no shame. There's no judgment. No one's watching you and what you do. Um, It's a moment to be honest, to just do inventory and to say, where am I on this Jesus thing? Am I willing to say yes? Have I said yes? Am I still trying to connect some dots and figure some things out? And Jesus loves you. This is what I want you to hear, that Jesus loves you on the journey. And we love you on the journey. And we are so thankful that you are here. So you don't have to feel any pressure. You don't have to take the element just because everyone is doing it. You could just pass it to the person next to you. And and just know God is, is still at work in you. Still pursuing you. Still drawing you unto himself. Still doing what he said to Peter. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. God, we, this is the sacred moment as we celebrate what you have done for us on the cross. And so as the elements are passed and as we partake or maybe in some instances choose not to partake, um, Lord, I pray that um, your spirit would just fall on this place that 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 everyone here would sense the the love that you have for us that was willing to die for us and we pray this in the name of Jesus